What's up, monks? We're back with another podcast this week. Uh, I will be talking to Igor Grossman, who is Professor of Psychology at the University of Waterloo, Canada, uh, where Igor leads the Wisdom and Culture Lab. Igor is one of the world's foremost experts on wisdom and what makes up wise judgment, particularly in the context of evolving societal and cultural changes. In this podcast, we're talking about the latest science on wisdom, particularly on metacognition and moral grounding and some ways that you can increase your own metacognition as a way of coping with the complexity of the world and increasing your own well-being. Uh, Igor's own lab has discovered relationships between wisdom and well-being, so this is definitely important stuff for navigating the complex world that we find ourselves in. It's now only a few weeks until my stage play will be going on in the new theatre in Dublin Temple Bar. Uh, if you haven't gotten a ticket already, the Friday night and the Saturday night are sold out now. However, there is still tickets available for the midweek shows, which is Tuesday evening, Wednesday evening, Thursday evening. And then there's also a Saturday matinee at 2.30. So if you want to come along, I suggest getting a ticket early because it does look like it's going to sell out. Um, the ticket numbers are dwindling. So hopefully I'll get to see you there. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. Oh. and whatnot brilliant so thanks for joining me igor um i'm a big fan of your work on wisdom and you know i consider you one of the world's foremost experts in the science of wisdom and it's something which i'm very interested in but quite inexperienced with i'm a philosopher by training so technically a lover of wisdom but uh the science of wisdom is kind of a more recent edition um so thank you so much for joining me today i really appreciate it my pleasure glad to be here and so yeah, and for the first question, I mean, why why is wisdom such a significant topic? Why is it is there suddenly a scientific interest in wisdom in recent years? Um, what do you think it's coming from? Well, you're the lover of wisdom, so you could probably tell me at least as much uh, as I can tell you. I think uh, the science component comes from the um, appreciation of the empirical inquiry to the topic. Uh, the societal needs of the day, including various dissatisfactions with how the civic discourse is going right now in various uh, parts of the world and uh, democratic and less democratic societies. Um, maybe the concerns with the uh, climate and consideration of long-term versus short-term interests. So how to navigate that? And like, there's a lot of discussion, of course, about uh, long-termism, whether it's beneficial, but how do you navigate that versus sort of the short-term goals that you have? Misinformation, uh, be it through boats, uh, various uh, states that may want to change the course of various political campaigns and so on, or existential risks, be it nuclear or new technological developments that people are talking about. Whenever you have those type of big topics, you often have the question, well, how do you navigate the complex um, sort of terrain where there are multiple agents involved, there are multiple interests, you don't know what those interests are, 
And you also, even if you know what the interests are, often they're in conflict with each other. So how do you balance them? And so that's where philosophically, traditionally, historically, the question of wisdom often comes in. And uh, maybe that's why there is quite a bit of interest in it today. But, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, sometimes you don't know why certain topics uh, pick up and become more interesting uh, to the public or to the scientists. Uh, sometimes it's something about the zeitgeist. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that you're saying that about the complexity, because one of the topics that it came up, I don't know if you watched the AI dilemma with Tristan Harris and uh, Aza Raskin from the Center of Humane Technology. They uh, did a talk recently on it, but they talk about the wisdom gap as in the in complexity is increasing with the technology, but our ability mm -hmm. to deal with complexity is not uh, as quickly. And so that there's this wisdom kind of demand, but we're not supplying it maybe as efficiently. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if the term wisdom in that context means the same thing it's as what right we're talking about today. Uh, but I mean, there certainly is uh, the question of how do you deal with the unknown unknowns, as uh, people often talk about in the context of existential threats from AI, as well as how do you deal with technological changes and regulations and interests of various uh, ages, including, for instance, like if you talk about the AI regulations, like uh, who should be regulating whom? Because on the one hand, I think a lot of people would agree that we need regulations. On the other hand, there is a big worry that the big companies that are currently beating their chest and saying we need regulations are the only companies that can afford having a division that would be able to regulate, which means that they will just stifle the competition. Uh, and that, of course, uh, infringes on another very important moral uh, standard uh, that sometimes, at least in democratic societies, uh, we uh, believe is very important, namely that you need sort of like allow for fair and equitable uh, market uh, instead of having some which are already dominant, uh, uh, continue becoming dominant, becoming even more dominant because they're the only one who can afford regulating. So it's often very, very complicated. Yeah, and that's complicated as the word, I think. And I suppose I think we'll jump into the AI thing. I do want to get into that with you, but I don't want to derail you immediately with All right. uh, All right. that kind of stuff because it's massive area. But I, it, I suppose something in the background there, which is, you know, what is wisdom? How do you think about wisdom in your work? I, I get this question a lot. And, you know, I often have a very disappointing answer because I find it really hard to come and say like, okay, here's, let me tell you what wisdom is. Uh, I often, um, as a scientist, we're in the role of synthesizing and coming to some kind of an agreement. So I can tell you what scientists, as well as some philosophers and education specialists, agree on what the fundamental elements of wisdom may be. And then there's, of course, a lot of people disagree. Whether it's my definition it depends on the time of the day. I'm much more of a constructivist, actually, uh, to really say there's one definition of wisdom. There's one wisdom. So I would say uh, that often in my sort of very intuitive, um, non-scientific understanding of it, like everyday life science, I'm thinking of it in terms of like there's a big wisdom and there's a small wisdom. And so like the, the big wisdom is the one that starts with a grand narratives about how to... 
live a good life and uh, be meaningful and deep and sort of like uh, pursue some kind of eudaimonic uh, in Aristotelian sense happiness. Um, uh, it's about sort of having uh, this kind of goal of flourishing on the individual, maybe societal level. Uh, and then there's a the small wisdom. And the small wisdom is like, well, if you are in a situation uh, when uh, you don't know what to do because there are multiple ways to navigate the situation, how would you go about figuring out what to do next? What would be the thought or cognitive or metacognitive process that helps you uh, navigate the intricacies of complex decision-making? And so in my personal work, as well as where there is more agreement on among the scientists, it's this kind of later, uh, later sort of smaller uh, wisdom. And uh, specifically, when we talk about uh, wisdom in uh, psychology, in cognitive sciences, and behavioral sciences, uh, we often talk about a two set of uh, variables. On the one hand, uh, there is an agreement that in most definitions of wisdom, uh, there is a focus on so-called perspectival metacognition. What that means is like a solid mouthful, uh, but it's actually very simple. So if you are in a difficult situation, uh, you often get stuck and sort of zoom in. And uh, what really can help you sometimes is to take a step back to shift your perspective. That's why it's perspectival. It allows you to sort of um, uh, get unstuck and look at it from different vantage points. And um, it's metacognition because it's not just about the cognitive process. We're not saying that wisdom is cognitive, but rather it's an ability to regulate yourself. It regulates your thoughts, regulates your affect, uh, uh, sort of emotion regulatory process, regulate uh, your motives, uh, how to pursue certain goals. And um, what that, to give a concrete example, for instance, one big topic right now is uh, one feature of metacognition that has uh, been investigated quite heavily is intellectual humility. So recognizing if you have enough information about something. And, uh, what that entails, in essence, is just to ask yourself in a challenging situation whether you have enough information to continue or whether you need to pursue more information. How credible are the sources of your information? How fallible are they? And uh, whether you need more. And so this kind of metacognitive step, because it's kind of thinking about thinking, is very important. And uh, there's a collection of those, and that's what we call perspectival metacognition. So that's on the one hand. And then there's another feature that a lot of scientists would probably agree on. And I agree on begrudgingly, because initially I didn't, but I would say I kind of came about and believe that maybe it is important. And it's uh, this feature called moral grounding. So in essence, a lot of people would say, well, okay, you can have this kind of metacognitive processes and you can engage in them, but you can engage them for a very tactical self-serving interest. Um, and uh, that will not be very wise because ultimately wisdom is supposed to be about something uh, concerning alignment of your interests with the civic virtues or um, with some kind of common good orientation or with pursuit of truth instead of pursuit of misinformation and spread of misinformation. And so uh, ultimately, which is kind of really interesting, coming back to this idea about AI that we just had earlier, 
a lot of wisdom researchers back when we sort of met in 2019 and tried to figure out what are the disagreements and agreements, uh, how can we find some kind of common denominator uh, in very different traditions, very different cultural traditions, epistemological traditions, uh, research traditions. Uh, this question of alignment, moral alignment, moral grounding of individuals uh, again, uh, very strongly, which is ironically the question that now we are wondering about the AI. How can we align the AI? Well, can we align humans in the first place? And I guess if you align humans, then uh, that, uh, that would be sort of a feature of wisdom. And the reason why I'm skeptical, I was skeptical, I still remain a bit uh, skeptical, is because I find it's very, very challenging uh, from the philosophical perspective, but also from the psychological perspective. How do you measure it? Like, what is a proper alignment? What is a proper moral grounding in a given situation, in a given culture? For me, uh, that is a challenge. Nevertheless, that is a common position that we currently have. So when you ask me, what is the definition of wisdom? I would say, well, it's probably this perspectival metacognition and a bit of this moral grounding. So I find it to be more comfortable to do research about the former rather than the latter. Yeah, that's so, because the, like the former is seems to be so much more measurable or so much like the latter seems to connect more to the big wisdom kind of thing that you were talking about initially in terms of it's part of this broader good life eudaimonic essentially you're not just using the skills-based metacognition to manipulate people or achieve your own aims it seems to have something to do with the proper aims or being aiming at the right thing or whatever we'd classify to be something that's right. the right thing yeah absolutely but in addition to that, like, again, like I already said, like I'm a constructivist to some extent, uh, I would say, well, in different situations, different feature of, uh, features of what this moral grounding may be, may be more important, more salient, and uh, the alignment, therefore, may look very, very different. Uh, so if you like, talk about sort of pursuit of freedom versus uh, pursuit of uh, some kind of um, well, having enough to eat for everybody, or like protecting your family, which is another sort of important moral virtue. Well, sometimes those are in conflict with each other. Like when we, as we experienced over the pandemic, you know, like there were the, all these big discussions about sort of like sacrificing your economic prosperity for a lot of sort of small businesses, um, uh, or uh, uh, sort of sacrificing uh, your freedom. Or, uh, you know, like, how do you navigate that? Um, and uh, in different situations, yeah. the answer may look very, very different. Yeah, and people might temperamentally kind of fall on one side or the other. I'm thinking of, like, big five personality research in terms of, like, if a person's very disagreeable, they might be less likely to optimize for going along with things that are going to be good for other people. Or if a person's highly agreeable, they'd be less likely maybe to opt for the kind of base level of freedom. But... It seems like that's that is really the alignment problem as well, because you could have those problems within as well as within the society. I mean, one part of us could be optimized for, you know, eating the cake while another bit wants to look good on the beach and another part, you know, wants to long, live a long and healthy life. And so we're always kind of wrestling with that aligning of our different subsystems. And it seems like a, a bigger version of that. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, yeah, that's something that plays in with metacognition, possibly. Yeah, and I think like what metacognition is about here is really trying to help you to some extent uh, figure out how to balance these different pieces. 
uh, in different situations. I mean, on the one hand, it can afford you with a greater precision about the situation, so you can optimize uh, that situation. Uh, so, like your understanding of the situation will be better. Uh, uh, like allows you for greater alignment if you want um, in whatever actions you pursue or with your intentions, your interests, um, and then considerations whether those type of actions that you would pursue would also somehow not only help you but also help uh, the the bigger picture, uh, the mm. a larger moral values that you may have. So that's uh, certainly it's like the fun of the features of metacognition. It's not only allows you to sort of like figure out which how to balance those two, but also like how learn more about the situation so that you can plan better uh, for how to embrace it for, further. Yeah, and it seems like it's not a silver bullet in terms of it's not no. like you just get the perfect metacognition and then you know everything. It's just like you have more perspectives to apply to the complexity and that gives you a better chance maybe of coming out with right. a good solution. Yeah, that's why I said like a smaller wisdom instead of that does not really mm. solve everything because like but maybe the given situation gives you slightly like that gives you a little bit more of an edge. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, are there any interventions that you've seen for increasing metacognition? Like where are we at in terms of I know I mean the whole history of philosophy is pretty much trying to do that. So right. like but um, I'm interested in the scientific interventions of how where that's at at the moment. It's a tricky. Like the term intervention is very loaded. Uh, for instance, yeah, okay, some sorry, I didn't use, know that. Yeah, some colleagues use it just like any experiment that shows group differences. Uh, like you know, you assign this group to do this, and you assign this group to do that, and then oh look. Hmm. In the lab or online, when they assign a bunch of uh, anonymous crowd workers to do X and Y, you see some signal. But is that really an intervention? Would you be able to scale it up? I have big questions yeah. about that. So, mm. in terms of the truth being said, like like to embrace intellectual humility to some extent, there is actually not that much. Uh, if you think about true interventions, where you have some randomized control trial before and after, you do something in uh, in between often for a long time, there's really not that many. Uh, there may be one concerning uh, that we have done in the lab concerning sort of like uh, reflective writing in a particular, from a particular perspective, and we'll talk about that uh, later, potentially. Um, uh, there are some that sort of <clears throat> look at, and this is not, I would not call it an intervention because there's no control group, uh, but there are some instances where people uh, students, or you might find it interesting, students in the philosophy class uh, would be, uh, you know, reflecting on life and learning about all those beautiful things that Aristotle, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Aquinas and others uh, wrote about or talked about. And then at the end of the term, after the school year is over, uh, they complete some measures and say, so look, like, it's the difference between before and after. And in some groups, it seems to be a bit of a signal. But again, there's no control group. So you said, well, is it really just, it may have nothing to do with being part of the course. It may just be, you know, participating in any philosophical discussion, reflecting in any possible way would lead to a benefit. Um, then there is another direction where there's some sort of interventions, uh, but again, contentious topic. And it's the direction of mindfulness. Uh, so the big topic, mindfulness research, a lot of money uh, being sunk into it. But the effectiveness with respect to 
some of those wisdom features that we are talking about hasn't been shown very clearly. So that's, I think, like it's uh, still something that future research can address. However, uh, the core feature of mindfulness um, probably does benefit uh, development of the metacognitive process. And the core, by the core feature of mindfulness, I mean this kind of uh, the idea of decentering and uh, the ability to sort of like detach yourself from the immediate experience to become more aware of the surrounding, attuned to the environment uh, uh, instead of just like focusing and zeroing in on one particular detail that you're stuck on. Uh, so that um, uh, component, the attention component that involves kind of the centering of transcendence, as some mindfulness experts would call it, uh, that seems to be uh, beneficial. Again, like not many studies specifically with a focus on metacognition, uh, but there are some. Um, finally, there are some interventions that just look generally at things like amount of deliberation, whether you give people time to think uh, or not, and whether they give them more time to think whether they would be engaging in this metacognitive process, uh, or whether they would be most acceptable to uh, misinformation, would be spreading fake news. There's a lot of discussion about that. And there is some evidence that that does help. It's like if you give people five seconds or like if you ask them on Twitter, at Twitter even introduced this feature of checking, like, are you sure you want to retweet this before you even read it? Uh, then that seems to work a little bit. Uh, and um, whether it really works because it engages all of the metacognitive process, uh, I don't know if that has been tested sufficiently yet, but it does seem to help with reducing a little bit the spread of misinformation, which is sort of like goes along the lines of recognizing limits of your knowledge and, uh, you know, pursuit of truth potentially rather than uh, a pursuit of a lie. Yeah, definitely. Is that what self-distance reasoning is? I know you've published on that a bit. Um, I was going to oh, ask you about that as well. Is right. that something slightly different? Uh, well, self-distancing is... Uh, yeah, that's one of those terms that has a lot of names. Uh, that is one of the features that is at the center of the mindfulness uh, practices, I would say. There it's called uh, self-transcendence. Um, the other term that is also sometimes used is ego decentering. Again, sort of decentering in mindfulness. That's like, again, that uh, that is the feature where you don't put yourself in the center, but sort of you expand your scope of what you are tuned to. Um, and in essence, it's if you want to use a simple metaphor, it would be um, a visual metaphor of being a fly on the wall in the situation instead of immersing yourself into the situation, looking through your own eyes. Um, mm. And uh, there we do see some benefits in the lab and very little, but seems like it does help. Uh, a benefit if you train people to engage in reflective writing uh, that would engage in self-distancing. So how do you do that? You ask people to, uh, there's this approach called Iliism. There's kind of a rhetorical device uh, where you write about yourself in the third person. So you're like, LeBron James likes doing that. Like, at least used to like to do that when he was making difficult decisions. Uh, now, before you stop and say like Donald Trump is doing that too. I mean, there are different ways like how people would do uh, this, uh, use this rhetorical device. Sometimes it's for self-presentation and marketing uh, techniques and that's exactly how Donald Trump is using it. 
uh, and sometimes it is really as a way to create a distance between your immediate self uh, and the experience, the experiential self. And um, when you apply it for the second, so like this kind of distance between the immediate and experiential self, um, that's where you get some benefits in terms of it expands your focus. It allows you to see those different perspectives. It allows you to uh, be more open-minded to different viewpoints, different ways how situation might unfold. And it uh, does help you with intellectual humility. It allows you to check uh, whether you're correct or incorrect, both in a given situation and over time. So we have some evidence to that. Mm. Yeah, it really reminds me of a lot of Stoic practices that yeah. they would have encouraged, really. And a lot of them that were taken up into CBT as well, actually, it was really reminding right. me of in terms of that cognitive self-monitoring and distancing mm -hmm. yourself from feelings and not um, learning to, yeah, that kind of metacognitive perch where you can look at, on things. They're almost taking a third person perspective on your own subjective experience. That's, and how that's that exactly right. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So like so uh, the, a lot of this ideas about, uh, I mean, it came to sort of metacognition and wisdom, but uh, um, it was both in philosophy, in the Stoic philosophy, but also some other traditions. Obviously, in Buddhism, you have something similar with the centering or some streams of Buddhism. Uh, but then in the clinical research, especially the cognitive tradition with CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy and different variations of that, it was rediscovered that for the purpose of emotion regulation and uh, helping people restructure uh, the difficult life experience where they have clinical problems. So like that allows you to sort of like reflect on it from a different angle, shift your perspective. That's exactly this perspectival shift. And that uh, is the core feature of uh, what CBT is partially about, at least to my very naive, I'm not a clinician, but my sort of theoretical understanding of it, uh, that's what it's about. And uh, yeah, we sort of just came up with the same ideas when we start looking uh, more concretely at reasoning about interpersonal challenges that are not clinical. So there, it turns out it helps as well. Yeah, I, I wonder if you're familiar with um, John Verveke's work. I think he was on the Wisdom Task Force or was involved with it in some way. I've had John on the podcast before as well, um, but he talks about how stoicism took Socrates basically and chopped him up into a load of psychotechnologies that you internalize into your metacognition. Was the, that's the way he thinks about Stoicism, essentially, <laughs> that they took this aspirational sage and then dissect him into all of these practices that you can then internalize him with to essentially have another perspective on your, a more complete perspective. He talks about internalization like the child imitates the adult to right. gain their perspective on their own perspective uh -huh. and this affords them self-transcendence but they talk about the sage is like to the adult like the adult is the child so by imitating a sage which is essentially supposed to be a very mature person yeah and um, you can then gain their perspective on your own problems it's kind of the perennial you know what would jesus do in a situation yes. you say like what would this person do and then you try and build that internal model um as if it's a real perspective or real person for you yeah and i mean that's that's probably one way how some of the strategies for distancing the centering and uh shifting the focus have been fused with various motivational components you know like there's a sage that you um mm. uh, admire 
or somebody that you admire, a mm. person that you care yeah. a lot about, and then that, that uh, motivates you also to continue doing that. Because, you know, otherwise it's kind of very dry, uh, unless you're like a deep sort of Buddhist that is like committed. It's like, I will I will do this dissenting like for, you know, uh, weeks somewhere during my silent meditation uh, retreat uh, far away from any people. I mean, it's kind of hard for everyday person uh, like, you know, you walk on the street and uh, you encounter others and they, uh, not everything is peachy when you sort of, in everyday life, there things happen. And so how do you then keep going? How do you motivate yourself to maintain this distance? So like you need to have the motivational feature. So I, that's how I feel about it. I, I mean, I, I, I love John uh, and, and, and uh, the way he thinks. I think, uh, uh, I don't know enough about the transition, historical transition between Socrates and like how Plato portrayed him and the, uh, you know, the Stoic tradition that happened, I think, a few centuries uh, later. Uh, but, you know, like a lot of narratives happened there. So whether, you know, this is a post-hoc narrative uh, that we create when we say that this was dissected, it certainly makes for a compelling narrative or whether that's truth. Maybe it doesn't really matter at this point as long as we can use those techniques. But I do want to say like the pondering that Art where I find that uh, one thing that is sometimes challenging, and I recently talked about it with some colleagues, I was thinking about, okay, how do we want to do an intervention with sort of using some kind of a sage or admirable per person metaphor to uh, instantiate uh, some form of distancing and so forth, or maybe just like, just um, try to act like a sage. Well, in different traditions, Sages may be imbued with different culturally loaded qualities. And in some traditions, they may be very idiosyncratic to other traditions. So, you know, like imagine you live in a culture that is very Spartan. And so it's about, you know, killing the will, eliminating the very sort of eugenic, eliminating the weak links mm. and survival of the fittest, the strongest, and it's obviously highly chauvinist. Uh, well, to some extent, actually, it's probably less chauvinist than some other parts of ancient Greece at that time. But it's true, uh, they were all pretty bad. Look, yeah, they were all pretty bad. They had were... slaves. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, but uh, it's all relative. But nevertheless, I mean, there is like there is a, a strong sort of macho culture, uh, and yes, like what would be with the sage in that tradition? Like they're very, probably very different from a sage in. Uh, Ireland, uh, where it was like a prescribed a very, very different set of democratic values and, uh, uh, you know, sort of principles of enlightenment and so on and so forth. Or you like go to, you know, currently you go to Russia, uh, a country that I happen to be a bit familiar with because I was born in Ukraine and so some of my families and uh, that uh, part of the world, unfortunately, right now. And when I'm thinking, like, like there, there's a bunch of people now who adore Stalin for whatever reason. There's a, the Stalin could reemerge. I, I, I can't understand it. You probably also can't understand it. But there's really a group of people who think that he was a great leader of the 20th century, despite all the horrible things that we know about him. And so we said, like, it's a sage. And then we start thinking about Stalin. And of course, a different set of qualities emerge. And like maybe you need to be ruthless. You need to you know, like the 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 end. Just uh, uh, you know, the as long as uh, um, you pursue the end, it will be justified through the means, regardless what the means are. 
uh, procedural justice, what procedural justice? Who cares about that? Uh, yeah, let's stamp out the enemies. Yeah, that's, let's be I, strong. There's something you're picking up on, I think, that is really important there, which is the kind of relativity. There's one perspective on virtues. It really reminds me of Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. Yeah. I don't know if you've read that, but his uh, mm -hmm. thesis of like, the issue with virtues is that different cultures have different virtues. Like even within the Greeks culture, the Aristotelian ideal is very different to the Homeric ideal, which was a warrior kind of king, whereas Aristotle's more of this yeah. thinking kind of guy. And yeah. even within its own culture, they can't agree on the virtues that make up the kind of ideal person. And that each culture, yeah, like one culture might, like the Japanese, who I've done a lot of Japanese martial arts and they're, their art of war is essentially like, you know, short-term advantage over everything. It's very, um, it, it wouldn't be as kind of honor, well, quite honorable, but also it's very ruthless. Like it's not the right. same as kind of other perspectives on it. And that you're a bit like, eh. So if each culture has its own one, could you say there's a universal model? And that's where you get into these questions of human nature. And like Plato had a very interesting answer that he had this model of the self, this tripartite model of the self. And there was the a social self, a human self, and a biological kind of short-term self. And so the four virtues corresponded to each level of the self. So the human bit was wisdom, and the social self had courage, the biological self had temperance, and then justice was the relationship between all the bits of the self. Um, so I think with those kind of virtues, you could say it depends. The perfection, like what ought to be, depends on what is. And mm -hmm. if you come from, like, McIntyre is a historicist, so he doesn't really have any theory of a universal human nature. He doesn't have any um, biological foundation in that, or he doesn't recognize one anyway. So I think that's, for me, that's where the debate is between what is and then what ought to be in terms of a human. Yeah, um, precisely. And it's hard. I mean, I, as I already said, I have more of a constructivist than I have friends who are more evolutionary biologically inspired so they, they believe that you know there is a something about the human nature and that we uh, you know if we can figure out what we truly are are we are we more likely to be true is our baseline good is our baseline bad are we more cooperative at the baseline because that helped our species to survive over time so those who are more cooperative were more likely uh, to uh, you know overcome the challenges of hunter-gatherer societies it's a good empirical question a lot of hand-waving of course and a lot of modeling with specific assumptions uh and then sometimes it just the, the model of the hunter-gatherer as some some cynic friends of mine say like somehow really closely resembles the model of victorian england uh, instead of uh, the actual hunter-gatherers, because we don't know what the hunter-gatherers were like, but we know what Victorian England was yeah. like, because that's how we start recording. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, chauvinist, like the man are strong, the women are weak, the women want the man. Anyways, all those type of things. But, you know, uh, maybe there is something to it. Um, it is challenging, though. Like, I mean, I think we, I, I do like the idea, so, like, if you think about it, for instance, uh, often I put myself in this position of like thinking, well, why these features of metacognition? Why are these the foundational things for navigating complex situations? And why do we often ascribe them to wise individuals? 
in various societies and various cultures throughout history. I mean, like you look at uh, you know Confucian writing, you look at Buddhist uh, writing, you look at uh, classic ancient Greek and Roman writing, uh, you'll see these features of that cognition mentioned. Different times, different emphases, different terms, but often like when you look at like, what uh, what is described, be it the gold mean or anything else, they emerge. And so, yeah. and then I have this kind of you know, then I, I become also this kind of hobby evolutionary biologist. And I'm saying, well, you know. If you are in the stuff situation, you need to coordinate with others because if you coordinate with others, then you need uh, that will help you to potentially kill a larger animal and protect your family or your tribe. So those people who could better coordinate, uh, they could probably survive better. Okay, so what do you need for coordination? You need those type of consideration of different perspectives. You need to check how your opinions are different from others. You need to be paying attention to social cues better. And so those type of social cognitive skills would be really, really important for them. But then there's this other thing. And we was like, well, okay, you can either sort of eat everything uh, and not plan for the next day, or you can think ahead. And you can either think ahead and think like, well, everything will be like this. Or you can think ahead and say, well, actually, it could be like this, could be like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of this kind of notion of how do you balance the long-term and short-term interests and how do you plan ahead uh, for the future, the, the better able, uh, the better able to prospect, uh, probably the higher the chance of survival. Because again, you could sort of like weather the winters and the seasons and so on and so forth. Um, and so, okay, those are maybe those metacognitive qualities uh, that uh, associated with uh, be able to balance uh, and be oriented towards the long term and uh, be able to sort of consider different alternatives that would then also emerge. But that's just speculative. I mean, I so far I haven't done really like there's really little you can do except for maybe uh, modeling it and doing some simulation works in which you create sort of like maybe an artificial intelligence little uh, mini societies uh, and then imbue them with certain qualities and see how they evolve over time. Which ones make it and which ones don't. That's right. Um, but yeah, because it's so interesting that even that idea of being ca- more capable of imagining the future than other people are being more capable of the future is supposed is just perceiving patterns in the world that we're then hypothesizing whether or not they're going to be the correct patterns or even patterns that we desire to be the case and you're in some sense that sets up the normativity it's like the normative power comes from our decisions that we're making our agency in, in ethics anyway and but the aim that we have constrains the, the behaviors that if i want to be a great football player I have to spend a lot of time playing football. I, my life is then organized by that goal. So the goal state that I specify then selects the patterns of behavior that I have to enact in order to achieve that goal state. Right. So there's a lot of question about what's the, well, people that seemed more capable of imagining the optimal state or that were embodying it or living it. Like they talk about the good life and the Socrates, I suppose, being the sage was because he could die so well and everybody was very impressed by him just being kind of, chill in the face of his mortality um was and so he there's so, like yeah. just thinking about was he really chill i mean like yeah. all this kind of narrative about him ruminating and justifying and i mean of course it's all filtered through plato it was like i don't know if that was yes like, well, if i would like soft, chill i would not like be ranting about uh, how <laughs> me being chill is so wonderful that's true and i mean he was yeah he was about to be executed and he was doing a lot of dialogues and writing poetry and whatnot so yeah, maybe that's he was, just some justification yeah 
But um, I, I yeah, I just I mean, this ties into my next question, really, which mm-hmm. is the relationship between wisdom and well-being, because, again, yeah. I suppose to go back to McIntyre, well-being to specify any kind of well-being is implying a, a function of a human being because you're normatively evaluating whether mm-hmm. they're doing well or they're doing badly. Right. So there's a there's an implicit assumption there in any theories of well-being of what. I guess if wisdom's associated with well-being, what kind of being is it yeah. measuring or what kind of being is it assisting in and is that... And what is normative, you know, yeah. What is normative there? I, I'm interested in that, all right. Well, I mean, it's a big question, right? Um, I think uh, to really start addressing it, we need to establish first some kind of ground rules, what we mean by well-being, as you just pointed out. And uh, in psychology, uh, for better or for worse, the last several decades of research on well-being have often been just focusing on how happy are you? How satisfied with your life are and you? Hedonic well-being. Is yeah, well, that one, I mean, it's it's actually more evaluative. I mean, if it's like how satisfied with your life are you? That's more of an evaluative judgment statement. Uh, uh, hedonic, pure hedonic, would be like uh, how happy or how do you feel? Do you feel good? Do you feel bad uh, in a given moment? Or you sort of like you can measure it multiple times. So you could sort of develop a profile of somebody. It's like, oh, look, this profile looks like the person is just miserable all the time, or uh, another thing that's often associated with sort of maladaptive uh, emotional qualities is like if the person is like, has crazy spikes, uh, almost like sort of a bipolar patient where it's like, oh, goes super happy and then a few seconds later, a few moments later, super sad, like can't just regulate themselves uh, or uh, can't react well to challenges because obviously... It's not just about regulating, it's about what kind of experiences, what kind of environment you live in, what kind of environment you create for yourself. Um, but um, if you do establish this kernel, say, okay, we're focusing mostly just on this affective hedonic and uh, maybe to some extent evaluative judgment. Well, that's an interesting question then. Like, uh, well, would the metacognitive features allow you to flourish in this way, like to feel more or less content, more positive than negative, let's say. And the answer to that question, it depends, <laughs> as usual. Uh, the First of all, uh, it depends on whether you're looking at are people, are wiser people, happier people. The answer is probably, to some extent, yes. Very weakly, though. Very weakly, like on average. Uh, sort of very sort of general statement. It doesn't mean though that in all situations uh, everybody would be happy go lucky sort of little Yoda. I was like, oh yeah, I just lost everything, but yeah, I'm still kind of happy, happy chap here uh, on my little Dagobar uh, planet uh, in the swamp. Uh, you know, I don't think that uh, that statement would be justified. I mean, depending on the situation, there's still a great room for variability in your affective experiences and your hedonic sort of processes, as well as how you look at life. In fact, some researchers would even say that, well, the more sensitive to the environment and suffering of others you are, what's there to be happy about? What's there to enjoy if you're really so attuned to everybody's misery, to others' perspectives, like you know, if you're very sort of empathic in that sense, uh, and 
reflect on how other people think and reflect on the future of our planet in terms of the climate change and everything that's happening like the, the prospects are not very rosy but like there's nothing to be uh, really uh, cheerful about uh, so maybe it's justified to see a negative relationship even between the features of metacognition that we discuss here and um, some kind of hedonic state now as I said, like empirically, that's not what's happening. Empirically, what we see is uh, overall, it depends on the study. And I think in different studies, people measure just slightly different situations. And hence, in different situations, you may have an even different relationship. But across all of them, you see a slight positive relationship. So wise people, in the terms of the data cognition, tend to be happy people. But here's the thing. That's not really what research is about. It's not really what the aspiration of philosophers is about. Nobody cares if wise people are happy people. I mean, that's interesting. But what you care about is, what you really care about is, if wisdom leads to happiness. That's the question. That's the holy crap. Or maybe if happiness leads to wisdom or something like that. That may be also interesting. Mm. You know, some, some positive psychologists, like there was a big movement in the last uh, 20 years or so yeah. uh, in psychology called positive psychology. Like, let's not look only at the negative. Let's make people happy. And if you make them happy, then maybe they will, you know, broaden their horizon, allow them to think uh, about it from different perspectives, become more creative, and everybody will just uh, dance around the fire and sing Kumbaya. Uh, I mean, I'm exaggerating. But uh, the point is that maybe the relationship goes also in the opposite direction. So that's the key, holy grail question, right? Like that. There was something certain... just on that, yeah. um, just the positive psychology thing, because there's something I was thinking about there, which is the flow states. Yeah. In terms of like, would a person who's wiser, who's more capable of metacognition, be able to organize their experience better so they have flow? Or more kind of optimal, if you had awareness of, uh -huh. I guess if you had metacognitive awareness of your low states or your optimal optimal states of um experience uh -huh. would you because is it a matter of optimizing attention to a certain extent metacognition like you're better at optimizing because when you were saying the example as well as like oh there's all these negative things to focus on and then but there's yes. kind of an infinite amount of negative things and an infinite amount of positive things yes so like you, you could you... choose where to focus but like yeah. if you focused all on the negative things it would probably kill you and then if you focus all on the positive things, you'll be delusional. So it's like right. the kind of, it's almost like that balancing of attention uh, yeah. to give justly or... Yeah, energy. I mean, yeah. Uh, well, it's a loaded question about, there, there are several questions that you're asking. Uh, one is Sorry about, about uh, yeah. flow and metacognition. The other one is about uh, the uh, process of emotion regulation or effective process in general, uh, which is a loaded question. So let's unpack both of them. Um, Flow is a, a complex phenomenon. <laughs> and, I mean, the way it has been studied in the past and talked about, it, like since Csikszentmihalyi introduced the term, uh, uh, it's been a little bit sort of overhyped and underspecified. Some people say, like uh, David Meldikov is a young, brilliant scientist, uh, uh, just recently had a paper on flow. Uh, as a, a computational model of flow. Anyway, he would say that it's more of a, uh, it's not really something you consciously are aware of. There's a lot of sort of that is go goes unconsciously uh, and you still compute in the background. Um, um, now, 
if it's not really conscious, to what extent can this type of features of metacognition influence this type of flow experience? Maybe they can create the situation uh, that would be optimized for experiencing flow, but the, the actual experience can not really interrupt it because like, that will right away zoom you out. Uh, in, in some ways, it's kind of similar. Here's a dirty example. May, may I provide a dirty example? Um, okay, so imagine you're making love to somebody. Uh, that would not be a good moment to start self-distancing. Oh, practice your metacognition. Well, yeah. Right? And so, <laughs> so that, that's not really where you want to go. And so, uh, and, and that's a kind of parallel to flow, right? Like you're in the moment, you're uh, uh, passionate, you're sort of like forget everything around you. you it, it's a very similar in some ways to the flow experience, of course. So I think like similar problem emerges uh, with the flow where as soon as you start engaging in the metacognitive process that we discuss here, it will totally disrupt any flow. It may make you sort of, and, and, and that's cognitively taxing and flow top typically is not, so it's, it's very different. But what you can do potentially is you can create the situation, you can optimize the situation, uh, select what type of features of the situation that would possibly afford for you to experience greater flow. Because if you're great, more attuned to the environment, and you know under what circumstances for you personally, this was the moment where I was able to really get into the zone and get going, be productive, or sort of enjoy the conversation with my friends or whatever. Uh, what, what depends on what type of flow experience we're talking about. If you are more attuned to those features, then you're probably more likely to experience flow later on. I do believe that. That was an empirical question, of course. Uh, but to me, that suggests that metacognition would help, but it would be this kind of causal chain where metacognitive features would afford you to be able to select the environment better and prepare it better to optimize for the flow experience. Now, and that leads to the second part that you're talking about, namely the actual effective process. So you're talking about sort of this attention selection, uh, so what do you attune to? And that is, of course, a limited resource. Uh, you know, you can't attune to everything. You need to be very selective. And one way to regulate your emotions um, and uh, regulate your cognitive process too is by choosing what to attend to. But that's not all there is to emotion regulation, for instance. Uh, you can also just choose not to pursue certain situations. Like you just like avoid from being in that situation in the first place. Imagine something triggers you uh, or somebody, you know that you'll have a really unpleasant conversation with Uncle Jim. And I mean, you love your uncle, but it's like, it really, it never goes well. Uh, or maybe be alone with him never goes well. So, but in the group, it's totally fine. So then you say, all right, so maybe next time I see Uncle Jim, I really need to make sure that I'm in a group and not alone with him because otherwise that conversation will not go well. Uh, all that stuff comes out. So uh, there you don't engage necessarily in attention at all. Uh, and maybe attention will not help because it's just like you're beyond that point of that culture. However, you can certainly engage in a, a serious emotional regulation by selecting what situation to uh, approach and how to create that environment in the first place. And I think there, again, metacognition can help. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. I'm. I don't know if you know Sebastian Watzel. Um, his prioritization theory of attention. I've had him on before. He's one of like the. He's written basically the first papers on the ethics of attention, which is a relatively new subject, but obviously very important for the attention economy and the fact that all the technology is optimized for attention and everything. Um, but he talks about that selective attention functioning by prioritization. That you're yeah. prioritizing one stimuli over another, and I wonder. It, it, there's probably a part of metacognition it sounds like to me anyway that's involved in that selection mechanism of getting good at that like that that's something that you can actually because it is context dependent as well i mm-hmm. mean it's there's no silver bullet for it that you can go this is how i optimize my attention all the time every time right. i'm super super focused or i'm super super zoomed out you're mm-hmm. constantly juggling it um but I, yeah i wonder is that kind of a which i suppose ties into the the kind of last question that i wanted to get to which was the uh the technology itself and the the uh, effects of how can the cultivation of wisdom help us deal with the this un, unusual digital um digital world i suppose that we find ourselves in that's optimized for attention that's trying to persuade people that's filled yeah. with misinformation and disinformation yeah. um that is increasingly exposing people to complexity at rates that we're not really able to handle even yeah. just in terms of information. Um, and do, yeah, do you see in the wisdom research, is there, is that, is that something, is that what we need really for this time, do you think, in your opinion? That's a good question. I, I mean, I think uh, throughout history, there will always be moments of either technological transformation, disruption, you know, be it uh, Gutenberg's Bible or internet uh, for the masses, uh, nuclear arms or nuclear technology, electricity, um, that have often resulted in questions of wisdom. Do we need to, like, but I mean, so like, do we need it more now than we needed before? I don't know. I mean, I think we always needed it as humans, (laughs) but uh, that doesn't make the question less valuable. Uh, Why would we need it now? And what could we use it for? I I think like the key feature of this kind of metacognitive process that a lot of uh, folks who talk about practical wisdom talk about uh, is that they allow you to embrace that certainty. It's like, especially in our society, like I, 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 we we somehow, on the one hand, see the complexity and we see that it's becoming worse and worse. It's like it's like the, you don't really understand what's happening. You don't know what's true. You don't know what's a lie. What's a deep fake. Um, you. Uh, don't understand really how things work like you know like back in the day this is a hammer it has a wooden stick it has a metallic part or maybe some kind of a stone part and it was pretty simple i mean maybe not so simple because you know creating a hammer would have been requiring certain skill set that we probably none of us have anymore um but it's certainly simpler than explaining how exactly does this camera that i'm looking at right now works what exactly is the mechanism of the digital transmission of information? How exactly does a fridge work or an airplane? I mean, I can tell you a little bit about you know, the jets, but I mean, I don't know the specific details. So there's much more information that we sort of outsource to others and just believe it. So on the one hand, we kind of accept that complexity. But on the other hand, uh, we are aware of this complexity. And I think like in moments with sort of you you know, you feel like the transitions are happening faster and faster. What sometimes happens is like people become 
even more interested in being certain, which is a mistake. It's a kind of a natural reaction. You kind of clam to, that's like my theory at least, like you clam to some kind of sense of certainty. In our societies, in the Western world, like be it in Europe, uh, where I grew up, or here in North America, we reward certainty more. We reward confidence uh, more, a clear communication. So, okay, this will happen. This is what you need to do. Let's make this country great again, uh, or whatever. Or like kind of this one single solution that will solve all the problems. Um, but the reality, of course, is much more complex. And I think uh, it's challenging and frightening to think about it, the complexity of that reality. Yet it's important. And I think the metacognitive features that we talk about, those are the features that allow you to embrace that uncertainty. But I first realize that there is that uncertainty, um, and bring it to the forefront, and then possibly embrace it. So I think like that's one way um, how we can approach this. I mean, the other one is like just like because you start thinking about different alternatives uh, and different ways how the situation may unfold, it may expand your horizon beyond uh, what is currently in your purview. And uh, that can also be very, very helpful. Uh, it can even sort of, you know, uh, some scholars, my friend Phil Tetlock, uh, has been studying groups of people who are better than others in making geopolitical forecasts, for instance. And most of us are miserable, including experts. Uh, not pretty, not very good. Uh, maybe some political analysts uh, who work for the government are better than others. Uh, but overall, not very good. But there is one group of people who typically does a bit better. And what defines, that distinguishes them from uh, the rest of us is that they actually do engage in this metacognitive features more. So if you have like a sort of a, one recommendation, so it seems like it does suggest that uh, these features allow you to be better calibrated even when making important geopolitical predictions, including about the current situation that we live in. Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of, yeah, the more you the more you actually engage with it, the better you'll be. It almost seems kind of obvious on the surface, but there's so much to push for certainty you were talking about really reminds me of kind of the Oracle of Delphi. Uh, the certainty is insanity was the third maxim that uh, it was know thyself, nothing in excess, and certainty is insanity, which I think are all pretty metacognitive uh, ideas. But that, um, right. it's in. Yeah, like the social media literature is very much on that, that the more information there is, people seem to split along tribal lines or along very basic, you know, where whatever their orientation might be in terms of like politics based on, you know, whatever, it could be high orderliness, high openness of experience and um, the enlightenment idea that everybody was going to get more information and become suddenly rational and completely informed about everything seem to have quite the opposite effect. But I, I see this kind of pursuit of wisdom and metacognition as a way that you could get some semblance of, um, not peace, but that you could get on top of this a little bit more, I think, if people right. develop those type of skills, that that's a, a third option rather than just the tribalism, um, or a second option maybe. I was thinking of the tribalism in terms of two tribes, but um, that... Another option would be the development of these skills and acceptance yeah. of the uncertainty that's inherent uh, in us. Yeah, and, and that's exactly humility. That's right. That's exactly what I uh, what I'm talking about when I say small wisdom, because I think like 
you know, in terms of the large scale aspirations, I don't know if you can do much about that by, you know, uh, I think uh, a bigger picture wisdom so is a big wisdom. That's more of a quest for this kind of societal level. How do we structure our societies? How do we change our ecologies? How we change our policies? Uh, but for everyday life, the every decisions that we are making, which may still be very, very consequential because each of us is doing a little bit and then it, uh, it helps potentially changes the rhetoric in the society as well. They, that's where those kind of metacognitive features may be useful. Um, yeah. yeah. 100% agree. It was John Verveke when I spoke with him had said that the idea would be to increase wisdom individually to help increase groups that could create wiser technologies, wiser institutions, and you could have a more positive feedback cycle rather than the current negative one whereby people are becoming more polarized, creating more polarized institutions, creating more you know, issues down the line. Yeah, I think you kind of need both. I mean, like if the system is rigged already, uh, like that, for instance, the online uh, algorithms are set up to reward particular type of behaviors. And, uh, if, if those rewards are stacked in a particular way, uh, that sort of like reward negative information, especially from potentially fringe groups, um, uh, good luck, uh, you know, you, you can, you can do yeah, so much like on the metacognitive level for the individual, but it doesn't change uh, yeah, the system. I just, I finished a, li a literature review for the social media literature where I looked at, I read in depth like 100 papers, but I looked at 2,800 on the, the ethical issues of social media, particularly of the ones around democracy and public sphere and stuff. And uh, it is doing exactly that. <laughs> um, the game incentives on it are, I mean, the research is pretty uniform in terms of saying, suggesting that there's a massive problem, but yeah, there's not, it certainly hasn't been, um, although, I mean, there's some attempts to deal with it, but it's just very new, I think, um, right. very complex, but, um, that's right. I think that's, you know, thank you so much, Igor, for this and for your work in general. And, um, I look forward to reading more and learning more about this because I think it's, you know, the most important topic as we've been discussing, um, for people to get a hold of these days. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. It was a pleasure.